0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of James Bond and Friends. Uh, James Bond can't be with us today because he's explaining carbon fiber Aston Martin's to the royal family. <laughs> um, so I'm your fill in host, James Page from MI6. And today with me, I have Bill Koenig, AJ Chowdhury, David Lee, and Ben Williams. Could you introduce yourself, guys?
1: I'm Bill Koenig. I run a site called The Spy Command. And I also have a website called The Bond 25 Timeline that's following. Uh, chronology, and there was quite a bit to, to write about with uh, Prince Charles' visit to the set.
2: This is David Lee here. I run uh, the James Bond dossier website. I'm author of The Complete Guide to the Drinks of James Bond, and I'm currently enjoying what passes for a post-workout shake, uh, which is namely rum and coke. <laughs>
3: My name is AJ Chowdhury. I'm the co-author with Matthew Field of the 800-page biography on the James Bond films, Some Kind of Hero, the remarkable story of the James Bond films. Updated to include The Road to Bond 25. and the spokesperson for the James Bond International Fan Club.
4: Hi, I'm Ben Williams. I write for MI6HQ.com and the magazine MI6 Confidential. All
0: right, guys. Thank you very much. Um, so this week... Um, given paul's great idea last week of doing the news last so if you're sensitive to spoilers don't worry we're going to do all that stuff at the end and we'll give you plenty of warning um but to kick it off um 2019's an interesting year because we have a lot of anniversaries in 2019 um most notably uh the 50th of honor Majesty's secret service which i think it's fair to say over the past 10 years has been revitalized in its um, in how both the fan, community and the fan community and the wider public kind of view that film. Um, so, I don't know if you want to, who, who wants to kick it off uh, talking about well, how that film's kind of changed?
3: I'll, I'll have a start at this. Um, it's interesting we talk about Majesty's Secret Service because we've just come off a very interesting uh, trip Bond fans did recently to Estoril in Portugal and Bits Gloria to celebrate 50th 50 years of On a Majesty's Secret Service. Um, there was a location trail and George Lazenby, John Glenn and some of the other principal cast gathered at Pitt's Gloria for Gala uh, reunion. And uh, I didn't go, but it seemed to have been wonderful. There are really interesting anecdotes from all the stars and cast and crews, some of whom had not met each other for 50 years. And it was organized by Anders Frege and uh, Martin Mulder on the tracks of 007. And... Uh, People like Stephen Saltzman came Harry Saltzman's son and uh, John Glenn and Silvana Henriquez and uh, of course George Lazenby himself and I think uh, much fun was had and I think it was m- memories were opened and George was quite amusing about shooting scenes in those original locations in Gincho Beach and Isteril and of course Pitts itself And it's uh, really interesting to herald worldwide the remarkable interest in this, now classic and revered bond film that is steven soderbergh and christopher nolan's favorite bond film
1: um a site called being james bond did a live a live stream uh for almost two hours talking about that same event um it's it's done by a guy named joe darlington he did go on the trip and being a live stream there the usual you know hiccups with the tech but it was interesting I, i i i didn't see it live i i saw a replay of it on youtube um I started like three different settings to, you know, before I took it all in, but it looked like a, a, a quite a good time for those who didn't attend.
3: Joe Darlington did a really good, I think, journalistic overview. He got the detail, he got the nuance, and I think uh, it's really fun. Anyone who has not been to Pitt's Gloria, it really should should you should go there. They've renovated it. They've got a great Bond museum, concentrating only on on a Majesty Secret Service, but also Murin and Lauterbrunnen are beautiful anyway, regardless of James Bond. Uh, and uh, I think it's a real well well worth the trip to go there. And I think, of course, you know, the original settings. It looks like the original place and it's probably the only place on earth that was built for a bond film that still exists you know
4: uh yeah um i have to say that uh from from when i first joined the forums um back in 2004 um i would say that my love for majesties wasn't um at its greatest uh but certainly um not more than a year or two later uh, i was putting it Pretty much at the top of the list, and I think that's still where it stays for me today. Um, it, it is one of those films that I think um, unfairly uh, gets um, quite a bit of a bad reputation, um, probably because it is it, it's it's a little bit of a one-off and perhaps a little bit unusual in the um, in the Bond over, but it, it is one of the better films in my opinion um in in fact i i I, as i say, i think it's my favorite film tied probably closely to casino royale um yeah
1: i have argued that it's the closest to a fleming novel in terms of the fewest number of changes i mean there are changes but you know there inevitably are you know when going from a book to a film but uh but i would say it has the highest Fleming content, if you will.
4: I think that's absolutely true, Bill. Um, one of the reasons why uh, I like it so much, I think, is because it does stay so so uh, closely true to the source material. I think
3: also... Uh- Charles Helmstein, his wonderful book, The Making of Honor Majesty's Secret Service, went through all the iterations of the screenplay. Of course, this was supposed to follow Goldfinger in 64. And um, the, the film that we would have got had right. Sean Connery done it would have been much more gadgety and much more in this line of only of Twice and Thunderball than the eventual film. So I think it's a blessing in disguise that Peter Hunt and George Lazenby took it on. Um, uh, of course, this was also the screenplay that would have had Goldfingers twin brother be the villain uh, you know it's the first time they had that rather right. than diamonds are forever it's right. been often reported so I think the great question what if Connery had done it would it have been the greatest Bond film I'm not so sure Connery was bored at the time again they were going to do this film in the spring of 66 um, after Thunderball but Cubby Broccoli, knowing that uh, Sean was tied with the role, deferred the making of the film to give Connery a break. So they missed the winter scenes in early '66 and went to Europe twice, which Cubby Broccoli then said it was going to be a less gimmicky film. Beat that.
0: So yeah, I think it's I think it's the biggest fallacy of the fan community when it often comes up like, "Wouldn't Majesties be the best James Bond film ever if Sean Connery had been in it?" No, no, yeah. it wouldn't.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and the Bond was going to drive a Ford Gran Turismo in the movie, it was going to have an Aston Martin that sort of had uh, tons of gadgets, ski poles and ski strap grenades and a 3D television. There are all sorts of things that that make the various iterations of the Maybaum script. Would have had um, had Connery done it. So sometimes, you know, I think history has its, you know, fate intervened somewhat to give us the film we eventually got.
4: Uh, I would also, I would also say that you can't just transpose Connery, Connery's performance into that. One of the one of the nice things about Lazenby's performance, I know he gets uh, a lot, a lot of criticism for it, um, but partly because of the the narrative. Um, Sean would Sean would have brought that sort of that uh, bluster and um, not you know that confidence that his his chauvinism. Bond had yeah the chauvinism well the chauvinism still existed in in uh, Lazenby's uh, portrayal I suppose but what you what you would have had is a much more confident Bond and I don't know whether that would have slotted in. Ben, Quite as comfortably. Ben, that's a brilliant the, point because what you'd also
3: then not got was Diana Rigg as Tracy. She was, of course, brought in as a more experienced actress and as a wonderful uh, Bond character, one of the best Bond women. And had Connery done it, maybe you'd have got Bridget Bardot or someone less experienced. And I think that chemistry between yeah. Diana Rigg, who is still wonderful, you know, I saw her give a chat to National Theatre a couple of months ago and she was wonderful. She said a few interesting things about on a service such as that she had fun making it had a bigger budget she felt very spoilt making it she she wasn't anti the film at all she seemed very um uh, pleased to be to, to have made it and um so I think Diana Rigg was a key important element of the longevity of the movie as well which I doubt would have happened had Connery uh, remained in the role
2: yeah, you know, for me, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Um, I think it has some great moments in it, and I was I was lucky enough to see it on the big screen in Barcelona two or three years ago. And uh, then uh, you get a, a real, you know, a real uh, or much more impact from particularly the ski scenes and, and stuff like that. But uh, I mentioned it um, once before that uh, it. The thing that lets it down for me is um, is George Lazenby's inexperience. It just uh, sometimes it it just uh, it it, it, he's so wooden, and it's just embarrassing to to go through. Um, But would it would it
0: would it be fairer to say, David, that it's not so much inexperience; it's confidence. Well, compared to Connor, like in the way he in just his body language and uh, mannerism.
2: uh, I think I, I think I think if if he'd done another film before this, he would have had he would have had the experience that would have given him the confidence. So uh, in a way, they're the same thing. Um, but also, I, I I kind of admire the way that he decided he wanted to go after the Bond role, and you know, it's he. If if you if all this if all the stories or if half of the stories about it are, are true, um, it was you know it, it was really something to to be that uh, single minded and go for it and, and land it like that.
4: To me, it's not about confidence necessarily. Uh, I, I think you're you're right. It's it's sort of inexperience. He certainly had um, his his share, and and then others of of confidence and bravado. He uh, still as does. You say, his uh, his gaining of the role. Shows that yes, he still does. He definitely still does. Um, but what I I would say is I think that there there is a certain um, I, I don't know kind of fragility that comes with that inexperience that that lends itself to that the character in that particular narrative that I don't think would have been working for, for Connery necessarily.
2: Um, no I, think- I, I i can't I can't see Connery in the role um so uh, i I agree with you there it's uh, I'm not I'm not saying replace uh, him with Connery it's just it's a shame that he hadn't done uh, at least one more feature film before doing I, I, but, Secret service
4: I, I agree david and but but there is there are moments where you see uh, Lazenby you know he's he's kind of broken and he's he's you know just before he meets up with the uh, with Dinah Rigg, um at the bottom of the mountain, um, you know, the, the, there's a real kind of sense of um, peril there for, for his bond that you wouldn't necessarily have got with with Connery because he wasn't necessarily able to show that fragility that uh, and and how would that have translated to the end of the film? Spoiler alert: Tracy dies. Um, <laughs> how 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 would he have managed that scene? Um, and I think that actually. Lazenby was was right for that film, inexperienced or not, I think that actually kind of that balance between him being a bit out of his depth, but also really cocky and confident, managed to create that performance. And I think that's what sells the film for me.
3: I think had Connery done the film, of course, you wouldn't have got Peter Hunt directing. I think the new team of Peter Hunt and Michael Reed and uh, John Glenn editing—they were hungry for this. They really wanted to make it. They, they they really put their heart and soul into it, and that's what comes across as well. It's Lazenby, Diana Rigg, plus that wonderful creative team, and Richard Maybound's screenplay, which again he. This was his, you know, he'd been writing it for four years. So I think it really inspired the whole team. I'd like to think Bond 25 with the uh, fukunaga Fukunaga will have that same hunger. And I think hunger is important to, to get a Bond film right to bring something new to it as well.
1: All right. Going back to what David said in terms of wooden uh, performance, there are some moments from George where it, it does seem a little wooden. And my number one example is when he first meets Draco, and Draco offers him the million-dollar or uh, – I'm sorry, million-pound dowry. And he says, well, that's a very tempting offer, but I don't need a million pounds. And it just sounds like he's reading from the telephone book. But there are other scenes where he's very good. But, you know, it's I, – I guess if I had to characterize it, it would be uneven. And then also, just I just wanted to agree with James on a point – there are some fans who think, oh, if Connery did it, we would get the exact same film just with Sean Connery instead of George Lazenby. And that's simply not the case. Again, going back to what you all said, the scripts, you know, if they had done it in 66, in which was the plan, and it was the plan as late as November 65 because um, Broccoli and Saltzman did an interview with the CBC where they said, yeah, in 66 we'll have yeah. – on Her Majesty's yep. Service in 67, we'll have you only lived twice. Um, you know, we, we just wouldn't get the same film. And also, another reason we wouldn't get the same film is because Peter Hunt wouldn't be directing it. And Peter Hunt did want to keep it as close to the novel as they could. And and that made a big difference. And there's another thing that was in some of those earlier drafts, of course, was the underwater acid Martin. I guess that's the origin of Wet Nelly. You know, <laughs> come you know eventually would happen but i mean that i don't i i just seeing that i'm just trying to imagine honor majesty's secret service with an underwater aston martin and just it does you know it just doesn't work for me so no and and like aj said we wouldn't have gotten diana rick either they would have cast somebody else um and a friend of mine, he thinks Connery wouldn't look good on skis. I have no idea about that, but um, yeah. I
3: think Connery was also very bored after year only of twice. Twice it shows. Right. So, i I'd, I'd prefer an inexperienced George. And personally, I don't think he puts a bit foot wrong acting wise in the movie but that's just me but i think connery was bored he was a great actor but i don't know whether he could have been inspired by the material i think he did like the script or he did express an improvement but yeah i wonder how he would have come across
0: maybe that's an interesting alternate history then aj because if they'd have done majesties after thunderball as originally planned maybe it would have reinvigorated connery and he would have stuck around for a couple more
3: exactly right? exactly yeah. so- exactly I would like
0: somebody with the making of book and pulling the dates out to edit Majesties in the order they filmed it. So you could look at George's performance over time, mm. over the production oh, that, yeah, of the that's film. That's does, yeah. it, does, it does it get Does it get better as he goes on? Or is it just, you know, or, or is it all over the place? Maybe, yeah, maybe well, he gets worse. Well, there,
4: there are other things as well that um, they added in in post. Um, so the whole kind of um
0: the quips
4: that it, the redubbing where he says, "Oh, north of the Caspian," you know, he's he's left the room, and that's kind of just sort of added on as a kind of a you know sort of quip, I suppose. But I I would have liked to have seen it without all of those little added on um, you know redubbed parts. Where just he, I think it would have made his character um, a little a little more. Um, more like sort of Dalton's Bond, um, less quippy, more kind of. He's just basically he's just um, dispatched that guy and left the room rather than you know doing the whole kind of yeah. what would I, I suppose well, lead on to be really more
1: sort of. And I don't know if he really needed George Baker to double his lines when he's in. Yeah, yeah I, I, I
4: didn't, I didn't like that. I thought that was just that, that's just showing like a lack of confidence in. Um, in, in their lead actor and I think that that's, um, that's an unfortunate thing to have done um, I was just going to say I understand that he uh, that Lazenby wasn't even aware that he'd had his um, right. lines redubbed until he actually sort of saw the screening
1: yeah
3: James, I like your idea of looking at the timeline of what was filmed when. I believe that the last scenes filmed were the last scenes in the film yeah. in Portugal, the death of Tracy, and yeah. the film ended on the 23rd of June 1969 for, for people. So that right. I guess they saved that moment for the end. But yes, yeah, a great, great idea to do that. That would be really interesting to track his performance. We'll throw it out there for somebody to cut it down on YouTube,
1: And also, Peter Hunt was playing mind games with him. Um yeah, you know, there was that documentary that's part of the home video where, and, and both sides admit it. You know where Peter Hunt said he wanted to feel he wanted Lazenby to feel uptight and uncomfortable prior to doing that scene, and all of this. You know, for whatever the method, you know, it, it definitely works on screen. I think no so question. too.
2: Though. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll have to have
1: to. Um watch all
2: the documentaries again i haven't seen them for oh, I don't know how many years it must be now 15 years or something like that i guess yeah. and, since uh, those special uh, edition uh, dvds yeah 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 and they're, 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 some of them are
0: really really good yeah mm-hmm. and a lot of people unfortunately aren't with us anymore so yes. that
1: will be the right uh, yes in fact I, I was watching one the other night not majesties but a, a different film making of documentary and i was struck by just all the people who weren't here anymore um because they were done tw- It's hard to believe they were done 20 years ago. They, like, yeah. like, they were released in like 1999, 2000.
0: Yep. Yes. Uh, friends that, uh, many people Lee Pfeiffer, John Cork, those guys put those together. Absolutely. Um, so speaking about, you know, like the, the, the fan trope of, well, Connery could have been in Majesties; it would have been a better film. I, I would have said, I would have rather seen Dalton do it than, um, then you know if you had to substitute anybody in fantasy James Bond movies, I think Dal- Dalton would play Bond the best. Was
2: Dalton more. in the running then as well?
3: Yes, they a did talk the to Dalton. They had a chat with him. Whether there were zillions of people in the running, but yes, Dalton. They he says, and they both say they had a chat with him. Whether that was a realistic thing, there were lots of people there, you know, or any of the alternate actors than the uh, Time magazine or the Life magazine feature would have been yeah. interesting to
2: see. His mistake was he didn't kick their door in to uh, ask for the role. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes
0: exactly.
3: Well, D- Dalton was yeah. also
0: 22. Yeah, so I think that's a bit yeah, young I'm for tall. Bond. <laughs> yeah. But in terms of his performance as Bond and the way he portrayed the character, I think it would have been great. Um, if you had to pick anybody, I would pick him
4: to do. I would pick pick Dalton as 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 old as he is now um in fact every every cast member as old as they are now just remake it <laughs> um but with but with everyone like diana rig um <laughs> uh, and you know if, if, if people have passed away just um you know
1: CGI, event,
4: <laughs> cgi but but age them age them appropriately so it's just a, a geriatric in in the fight scenes that we oh
1: my back <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> they'd be, well, they be hitting each other with their canes
3: <laughs> well it, it's interesting it's interesting that at the time of making film just before uh, George Lazamy had gone out with Jill St. John and she said to us that uh, C- Cubby said to her that when they were interviewing for New James Bond um, every when Sean Connery walked in the room everyone every secretary turned around and said who is that and they said they never got such a female reaction subsequently until George Lazenby walked into the room. So that was a key factor. I think the female view of, or, or, or the, the, another view of uh, Lazenby el- counted for something. So at the time, as a top male model, he obviously turned a lot of heads and that kind of sexual frisson was a key factor in as well. So, you know, I think they were judging Bonds by different standards in those days as well. I, I,
0: I run, Ironically, in the film where it matters the least.
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Probably explain- well, try
3: telling all those... Try telling all those girls on the mountain top, you know, that it's actually. I'd
0: say, AJ, if you've got if you've got like a couple of dozen women locked away for a couple of years by themselves with no
3: man, it, it you don't have to be the best looking dude that walks in at that point. You know. That's true. That's true. <laughs> well, that's... it's ironic. It's the most romantic Bond film, but there's all these Bond girls he enjoys on the mountain top as well. So it's a it's a funny old like, thing, anyway. It was no wonder
4: man. Gunther was so upset
3: that's right <laughs>
4: <laughs> sorry i've got nothing more than that i have to say that there is there is some unintentionally funny stuff um in on majesty's secret service that always that, that always makes me laugh and that the um one of the ones that sort of is outstanding for me is the hypnotism scene when mm. he's talking about not liking chicken right um i i Unint- like I know it's not intentional, but I, I just cry with laughter at that every single time.
0: We put up that spoof uh, Folgers coffee license to kill commercial the, uh, last week, which I just – that tickles me. That's like my sense of humor. I was going to – I might edit a KFC
3: commercial with Telly Savalas. <laughs> I thought Telly Savalas <laughs> I thought Telly Savalas was the best blowfellow, personally. I, I I never understand why people don't like him. I think he's got that quite regal air, and I like his sort of play on it.
0: He's also menace, menacing physically. Well, he yes. he
1: had he had experience playing villains. I mean, he pay, he played Pontius Pilate for crying out loud. I yeah. mean, that that's why he shaved his head uh, was for that movie, um, and he that's kept right. it after that. But you know, he was very experienced playing villains. It's and he's also. It's also probably the most um, faithful adaptation of Spectre in that like Spectre wasn't this thing that like had offices in every world capital. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't like the U.N. or something. I mean, it was I, I mean, it was more than a couple guys, but it wasn't this humongous organization. And. Blofeld is actually more of a hands-on guy. I mean, he's going skiing with his thugs for crying out loud. Um...
4: <laughs> Just like on vacation.
1: <laughs>
4: yeah. so, like guys, it's been a it's been a tough year. We've had it's a the, few them. Um, let's all go skiing. It's the it's oh. the Q
0: two team building exercise. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and and it's the only Christmas Bond film, isn't it? It's the only uh, kind of thing right. we can. Every Bond film is a Christmas, Christmas. film.
0: Yeah, the, the world is not enough. You can argue is all Christmas.
3: Music. Oh, okay. good point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like that. Good one. <laughs> yes, every Bond film is a Christmas. Yeah.
0: Well, the world is not enough. Is actually set in that time, right? December. So other than that, right? Oh, is right. It? Okay. Right.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I know, but the the, the only reason that she was uh, called Christmas was for that joke, yes. isn't yeah. it?
1: <laughs> yes. Although in the first draft, you know, she was not described as anything resembling Denise Richards. She no, was- she's a Latin
0: American girl yeah. hunter.
3: She was um, she yeah. was called Christmas Jones because there was a lawyer in the Derek Bentley case where the person we'd wrote let him have it, there was a lawyer called Christmas. Her first name was Christmas, so she's named for Christmas. Really?
0: Oh. Mm. Okay, I didn't know that. And of course, you know, they they kept that rolling with Mr Kill in died of the Day. Yes. <laughs> I remember when we reported that 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 actor was going to be played a character called Mr. Kill. And everybody was like, you're so full of shit. <laughs>
1: <laughs> They're not going to call a henchman Mr. Kill.
0: Well,
1: <laughs> yeah. There you go. I was about to say one other quick thing about Majesties. There were some interesting scenes that didn't make the film. And you, some stills are out there. You know, It turned out that Hillary Bray's assistant was like really working for Blofeld. And was taping Sir Hillary, and so Bond has to chase him. And there are stills of that foot chase, and Bond eventually kills him. But then there was that. What followed, though, was this bizarre sequence where it's like, oh, gee, if if he suddenly turns up dead, Blofeld will get suspicious. So they fake they fake a tr- well, they fake it. They, there's a train accident, so like there's a car full of corpses, including the assistants, and q shows up to help bond with it i mean he's not on the train when it happens but uh and it's just i was reading it the script is like this is very strange and that and also the whole sequence um starting with when bond discovers you know fidian i think was the assistant's name discovers he's working you know listening in chasing him down having the train thing I mean, it's like about 10 pages of script and the yeah rule of thumb is like one page equals you know a minute of screen time, so that that would be like another ten minutes on yep. a movie that was already long. So I don't know if they even tried filming the the train sequence, but. Um,
3: well, Bill, you see, and that's a great point, and you see the vestiges of that scene in the newspaper headline that Campbell's reading in Switzerland. You see yes. the headline reference. Yeah, and the, before the train, before the faking of the death, there's a, that foot chase then goes into the underground rail, postal mm-hmm. railway near Mount Pleasant, and right. a sequence there that then, and uh, Fidian dies, and then you cut to this fake death thing. So it's great, and that, funnily enough, that Mount Pleasant railway system just reopened up for tourists to visit. So it's an interesting. I don't think they're aware of the the unused bond history there to it. But, yeah,
1: and and one yeah. other quick oddity about that headline. So in the script it says, I think eighteen, and then for some reason in the movie the headline says nineteen. Though why yeah. there was a change? No, not that it matters, but. <laughs> Uh, but yes, that headline is definitely there. And if you stop, the, you know, if you pause, right, the, yeah. I just, I just did, you know, 30 minutes before we started recording.
2: Hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, you, you can clearly see it. Um,
2: so somebody died of injuries later. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, we, um, we came across, um, well, I can't say how, but we we have stills of scenes that were shot for Majesties that didn't make it into the yeah. movie. One of them is the rooftop chase, we know. Um yeah. and they haven't been seen since the production, so watch this space. And and subscribe to MI6 Confidential.
3: Fantastic.
0: Talk about films that had a tumultuous production history and reschedule and delay and overspend, I think. Exactly. Um, had Majesty's had Majesty's been produced today um, the media coverage would be um, pretty toxic about that film
1: Oh, if, if word got out about that party where where Lazenby was upset um, right. this is in the, the, the documentary where uh, Dana Broccoli decided she'd break the tension she she had arrived described oh there's all this tension she decided to throw a party you know for everybody and they had the party and then Laz shows up and he's like kind of surly and nobody asked me and said, George, it was on all the elevators, all this. Well, and I forget the exact thing, but anyway, apparently he didn't make a good impression on, on Cubby Broccoli, but, uh, so anyway, just if that had gotten out in today's media landscape, I mean, it would have been particular, what the sun would do with that is, uh, (laughs) I oh, you
4: wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't need uh, just a, a picture of him pointing randomly in one direction, <laughs> Peter Hunt looking shrugging in another direction. <laughs> it, you know, it was, it was all, it was all there to be, uh, to be seen. I
3: mean, social media, social media would have had a feast on the whole casting process, I think, let alone the actual filming.
4: Mm.
2: Yeah. Bond actor did this at party thrown in his honour.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> one quick trivia note about the script also the one line at the end of the pre-titles as scripted was this never happened before 007 he's talking to himself that then became this never right. happened to the other fellow which which supposedly is according to the documentary was something Lazenby had been saying all throughout the production wow. you know because he was like having a oh up on the um, Ski, not ski lift the cable car. He was having to be up on the cable car, and he was, you know, there were safety devices, but he had to stay there. And said, well, "Why? What do I have to say here?" This never happened to the other fellow, and apparently he was saying that all throughout the movie. So then, when finally time came to film the scene, Hunt supposedly said, "Why don't you just say that thing you've been saying all throughout the movie?" And then, so, so supposedly that's how the line got changed from the script.
4: I think it's. I, I'm usually not very comfortable with fourth wall breaking in films um, with the with an exception to Phoebe flea um, Fleabag which I think does it exceptionally well and, um, and I
0: would add in House of Cards
4: and House of Cards of course um, there are there are exceptions to the, to the rule but, but generally I, I, I don't like being broken out of out, out of something but this I think it's it's debatable whether it is really fourth wall breaking um, but um, I think it's an acceptable time that.
1: It, that as, it as originally scripted, it was definitely not fourth wall breaking. You know, it's you could you just picture it as him just sort of muttering to himself. Um, you know, it's it's fine. It's obviously obviously we still remember the line fifty years ago. So or fifty years later. So well, it's uh, not it's
0: not just that. It's used as a headline, or as an anchor, uh, or as some caption. Yeah. I mean, it's like that yeah. is the takeaway from that film. Is if you're yeah. covering it, is that's the line.
3: I personally, I personally think it's charming and sort of eases the audience in. Basically, saying we're not trying to kid you, and I think he said it as as Bill said. He said it about you know comparing what he did with Sean Connery. He also said when he got his per diems, he kept saying how much did the other fellow get. He was constantly sort of asking about Sean Connery, and prior to him. It, Doing the film, um, as you know, Sean Crony's then wife, Diane Chalento, was Australian. And she, he, George Lazenby had gone to parties at Diane Chalento's house. And she basically wrote him a note before he did the film saying, you know, I, I pity you doing the Bond role, having seen what it did to her husband. So there's a quiet of kind of following the other fellow's footsteps, um, you know, in the whole kind of angle of it. So, yeah, I, I love the fact it has so many meanings now.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I think as, as James said as well, it kind of you can hang your hat, the whole film's hat on that yep. uh, on that one line. So
0: I think the other thing, because we have a lot of different generations of Bond fans listen to this podcast and read the website. Um, if you've only seen it on the Ultimate Edition and up, the intro, you know, pre-title sequence, color was color corrected as day for night. Which it never was in the original film, right? It was morning rather than the kind of dusk yep. twilight we get yep. in the Ultimate Edition. Yeah. Um, so, in in the spirit of like, we don't care anymore, so we just tell people what happened. Um, when they were, when Larry were remastering um, those films and color correcting it, Eon at their headquarters did not have a calibrated tele- their screen. Oh, God. And yeah. they had the windows open and the lights on and stuff. So when they watched it, nobody noticed. Yeah.
2: The, 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 worst, <laughs> the worst example of the Lowry uh, color correction is in Dr. No, I think, because um, if you watch it, the uh, Quarrel is wearing a red T-shirt. And in the right. Lowry prints or, or the Lowry color corrected version of it, it is just l- like this... Bright, bright, bright red that just uh, stands out. Well, in whatever scene he's in, and it, it, for, for me, I, somebody screwed up there. It's probably yeah. for the same reason. Yep.
0: Yeah. yeah, they didn't have a calibrated uh, monitor, yeah, so yeah. It, the, the, it really the stands out. The, the two, the two parts of that process weren't looking at the same thing. Mm. So that's how nice. mistakes crept in. But I know that I know that upset a lot of people when they watched it for the first time on their remaster and it was the time of day had changed of the whole sequence.
3: Well, it's funny, I've just managed to see in the last month or so quite a few Bond films on the big screen and I think when you see them on the big screen again with 4K prints, they're wonderful, All the, some of the faults go. I think they really need, if you get an opportunity to see them on the big screen in whatever venue, I think that they come alive whatever the faults are, with not it?
2: yeah no i i, I agree I, I when i saw um when i saw on on majesty's on the big screen it was a it was actually a thirty five millimeters as print which was quite scratched and so and a lot of crackle on on the hmm. soundtrack but even so um seeing it on on a, a massive massive screen like that uh, you know it, it it's it's something hmm. else we're so used to seeing them yep. on the television all the time um that it you know when when you can it's it's worth doing it even, even if you've seen them a dozen times before, yeah. The Regent
3: Street Cinema in London showed Thunderball, Live and Let Die, Never Say Never Again and Spy Love Me with uh, Martin Bezik, Madeline Smith, Valerie Leon and uh, Caroline Monroe giving a little talk afterwards. And it was great. There were packed audiences and the reaction towards what I call civilians, non-BOM fans, they really enjoyed it. The screening of Casino Roll at Secret Cinema was a fantastic experience, again, If we've only seen it 77 times, you need to see it at Secret Cinema because it breathes new life into it. And then the 30th anniversary screening of Licence to Kill, which was introduced by Morris Binder's assistant, Alan Church, again, a sold-out showing, and it breathes new life into these movies. So if you get a chance, go and see it in the cinema
2: yeah they were they were showing um all the the daniel craig films in barcelona recently in, in this month and but i i just uh, i haven't had the time to get down there uh i would have would have loved i think to see quantum of solace again yeah. on the big screen in particular yeah. but uh uh not to be
4: yeah i i agree I've, I've i've been fortunate enough to see um quite a few Bond films um on the big screen and it really does make a huge difference um I'm disappointed to say that I won't be able to get to see Casino Royale um, uh, at Secret Cinema, which I think would be an incredible experience. Um, But um, I'm not going to be in the country. But otherwise, I would. uh, Well, the Secret Cinema thing,
3: it's, it's all over London. It's going on right now. It's wonderful, it's a very immersive experience we can't, I don't think they want us to say too much about what actually happens, but it's in this some secret location in a kind of uh, uh, odd part of London. And when you go there, you're supposed to play act and act a role you're assigned and get clues and go through various environments. Some invented for the movie. I mean, you've got, a key branch in casino role, which is interesting, and they've got additional characters and 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 every person you meet is an actor, and you're around other people dressed in costumes, and they've got extras there. It's a really interesting way of seeing it. And then when you when this when the screen eventually reveals itself, like it's like something from a Ken Adam Bond set, and it's wonderful. And the audience are really pepped up. Again, it's it seems to be a lot of hipsters and kids and people that probably haven't seen it. Zillions of times, like most of us have, so they really sit, react to it as if it's happening for the first time, and there's kind of Cirque du Soleil feeling about it with the interaction with the cinema, and it's really, it's really fun. I'd be interested now, know, AJ, how many of that, how much of that audience ne- didn't see it in the cinema originally? It's a great, it's a great question. I, I get a feeling by their demographic, not many had seen it in the cinema. Um, and even if they had, they probably would have only seen it, right. you know, around about 2006. Uh, I mean, I'm guessing, I'm speculating, but the reaction, I, I just saw The Spy Love Me at the Regent Street Cinema, you know, it was it was a Father's Day screening, and people went wild, and it's, it's interesting watching it in a different civilian environment, because these films still play, they still work, even the old ones. Of course, people laugh at the wrong places. When Roger Moore in The Spy Love Me gets the sort of the guidebook to retargeting the missiles, everyone laughed at him leafing through pages. But Casino Royale, all of them work really well. License to Kill was surprisingly funny. The jokes landed. People really enjoyed it. Um, Maurice Binder's assistant Alan Church gave a wonderful talk about doing the titles, about Timothy Dalton. Very funny, very interesting. And I think think the new way of seeing them, I think Skyfall's going to be shown at the Royal Albert Hall later in the year. It's great. I know we've all seen every nook and cranny of these films, but it's interesting when you just sit back and you see the reaction from other people which is always, it's always interesting. The jokes land, never say never again. I hadn't seen that in the cinema since 1983. That worked. there was a great print. And again, people laughed, they laughed where they should. Of course they laughed where they shouldn't as well, you know, but it, If you get a chance – I know they they, they tend to get shown more in London than anywhere else, but if you get a chance, uh, put a moratorium on watching them at home and see if you can see them there because it's just great. That's how Bond films, I guess, were meant to be seen at the cinema once or twice, you know. We've all seen them so many times.
1: Yeah. It definitely was. Um, I mean, I actually saw Majesty's first run in a theatre. It was actually the first time I saw a Bond movie in an indoor theatre because – I'd seen Thunderball and you only twice at a drive-in. And then, so I saw that in, you know, winter of 69. And then I saw it again, like, I think it was two years later, they had a double feature of Her Majesty's Secret Service and Diamonds Are Forever. And watching them at the same time, time, except, you know, for a short intermission between the two, makes the beginning of Diamonds just seem a whole lot different (laughs) than if you see Diamonds in isolation. It... Suddenly, that you know, when Connery's hunting down Blofeld, it just kind of it takes on a new meaning, having you know just seen you know the preceding movie in its entirety. It um and again, I and I don't think you would get that effect, you know, just popping you know right. blue rings in a in a player, right. you know, seeing it in a theater. With a bunch of people in the dark it just you know it, it has an effect no question
0: yeah i'd say i mean to your point aj i was in burbank two years ago well i'm in burbank all the time but two years ago when um, the roger memorial screenings were on Oh yes. and so i went to um the furies only spy love me double bill in burbank now the audience was 90 something plus percent film people right because that's the town yeah. and they must go to like three or three to five screenings a week Right. And they're usually checking their phone, you know, making, you know, d- not engaged at all, really, what was kind what was of in that screening. Not one single person checked their phone. Everybody was engaged and they got standing rounds of applause at the end. Yeah. And it was like the most cynical audience you could find in the exactly. world. Loved it. Exactly. Absolutely loved it. Quentin um,
3: Tarantino showed at his cinema there, didn't he? I think he showed Moonraker. Around about that time as well. Yep. And Bill, I I really like your point about seeing it on a Majesty's Super Service and times Forever in context. You know, seeing times after at the time after Con- Connery's return would have been scintillating. I I sometimes think seeing Timothy Dalton Dalton I love, but seeing him in context after Roger Moore is lost when you watch him now. And I think every Bond is a re- kind of reaction to the last one. But when you watch them now, sort of at Wild or whenever you want to, you lose some of the connective in you that that why they lie licensed to kill see, seeing it 30 years afterwards what it was trying to do you could see it was the dalton dna is writ large in the current films they're trying to go for more drama more intrigue more character which they probably couldn't have done effectively then Di- uh, license to kill is kind of halfway house it's still very entertaining but there are lots of sort of hu- very humorous bits so i think bill's point about watching it in context at the time now you know, and Bond films are very much over their time. When Bond 25 comes out next year, you know it will be all having these zeitgeistian nuggets that will be lost five years cent, uh, hence.
1: And United Artists released all sorts of Connery double features, um, and I think they had a, I think they had a little bit of trouble kind of figuring out how to drop Her Majesty's Secret Service into it. But I thought that particular one of ha- pairing that with Diamonds, I thought that works as well as anything else and i mean i really liked the experience at the time
0: i'm i'm going to throw out there a theory which is untested and unproven but i think the reason why majesty's isn't very well loved in the states is because when the tv deals were done to show the movies on t- television majesty's was often cut out all the broadcasters didn't want it
1: well, so I you, you went I was there a, for the first the first broadcast when yeah, they, which,
0: which was completely ham fisted.
1: Yeah, ham fisted destroyed and, it. And here's and here's the thing. I don't know for sure for sure who you know was quote playing Bond in that voiceover. I I've some <laughs> sources say Alexander Scorby, but that is definitely not correct. That is Alexander Scorby had narrated a TV special in 65 about James Bond. Uh
3: Somebody, the incredible world of 007.
1: right? Yes. Um, um, somebody said they had read they they had read in Variety that Variety had done a story at the time of that showing, and that it was a guy named Alan Swift who was this voiceover artist. Um, I said, "Well, do you have that?" He said, "Well, I think I have it, but it's like in my stuff. It's like, well, ugh. and I haven't been able to to verify that." Otherwise, I, I mean, I did actually look up this, you know, the guy, this Alan Swift guy actually did get a big obit in the New York Times. So he he definitely would have, you know, he definitely could have done it. He would have been a logical person to do it. But I I can't confirm it. But it, that's that's sort of a trivia question out there. Um,
3: that was the infamous 1976 ABC. Mutilation. Yes, there's a great interview with Cubby Broccoli where it's brought to his attention He's at the UA headquarters in New York, and he's upset about it. And I think that Mike Mike Beck, the UA executive at the time, looked into it because that was certainly a breach of uh, what's called moral rights when you you hack a film to pieces. So yes, I think afterwards I think that never happened again. But yeah, it was it's an interesting curiosity. If anyone's seen it, it's a kind of Philip Marlowe esque sort of narration over a cut up movie, and and it's 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 uh, it's a curiosity.
1: It's a first person narration. And well, first of all, they had actually edited it into two parts. It was like aired in 90 minute segments, 90 minutes, including commercials. Um, And it ran in the middle of the week. I think it was either Tuesday or Wednesday, I forget which, on successive weeks. Um, So yeah. And so what happens is you see the gun barrel and as the Gun Barrel plays, you see this thing projected on the screen, you know, edited by ABC for television, which was like, that's kind of odd. I mean, I actually <laughs> did an audio recording that, that ended up, the tape got mangled. It was in a, you know, where you put a tape recorder in front of the TV set. And the I may even still have the actual cassette, but it it's unusable to, to listen to. But I do remember it very distinctly. And so then you see this come on and then it fades and suddenly we're in the middle of the movie where bond is escaping from Piz gloria and then you have this first person narration and i was saying what is going on here? and and then you have a quote flashback quote unquote to the beginning of the movie and so on and so forth
0: yeah, yeah i was just thinking in yeah. the context of when that was broadcast because you know 76 so you've got you know, Bond mania went through the United States as Connery. And then you've got Roger just about to hit the height of his powers in spy love me the year after. So you've got two big camps of um, fans and bill. We've talked about like Roger wasn't exactly out of the gates in the U S either. Right. But, right. and then you've got to what most people would be their first introduction to this other chap playing it for one film being a dreadful TV edit of the movie. Yeah. I can imagine that like, a lot of like casual fans dismissed it and probably didn't look at it again
1: for years. Oh, and, that's that's a know. great theory. And, and, I believe that. <clears throat> and in the ad, ABC was promoting Telly Savalas because Right. The series Kojak was on at the time. So the ad in TV Guide was Telly Savalas in Biggest Bond Movie. Um, <laughs> so, so they're all talking about the, so the ads are talking about the villain. Um, it was, it was just a very strange time. They didn't show it again for a few years and then when they did show it, it was, Shown like it was supposed to be but
4: i think the edit edits aside i mean they are obviously a, an important factor in how people perceive the film but ultimately this is a this is a, a film with a very downbeat ending and it, it ends on a very kind of um yeah just dis, disquieting note and then suddenly you roll in with the the um the bond theme and it feels very kind of disparate and um, it juxtaposes quite harshly. And I think they learned their lesson with Casino Royale, which also ends on the, you know, spoiler alert, the death of, um, sorry, I had to uh, the death of um, Vesper. Um, but what they did there was they, they then they added on that element where Bond confronts Mr. White. And if they'd have done something similar for Una Majesty's Secret Service where much like um, Sean Connery does in the beginning of Diamonds, you know, where's Blofeld, where's Blofeld? Uh, if, you'd have, if you'd have maybe put that on at the end, um, that might have changed the tone of it slightly and might have made you want to have Lazenby come back and it might have made the, the difference between the, the, the perceived success or failure of the film because then rather than having a very downbeat and dour ending where people go, oh, well, that was a bit depressing, they go, ah, oh, yeah, we're going to see him come back in the next one and he's going to get him for that.
3: I think that's a very astute point, Ben. I think that's exactly the structurally casino role uh, gives you the tragedy but also ends on a triumphant note. And I, I, I agree, Bill, I think the, was, oh, the embassy service was cursed because in the UK on the VHS version, um, all the Gumbold sequences were cut out. Uh, of, of the initial God. thing, and and but that was broadcast on TV, uh, the Gumball right. sequences, and then you had this short scene with Sean Campbell going up to try and get access to the Episcopal uh, and meeting Gunther. That was cut out, and it was only when restored, I think, in the mid-'90s on a VHS that you got the whole film. So, yes, Manchester's running time, I think, caused the editorial hiccups that sort of, I'm sure, as James said, probably did affect its, its um, you know, lovability so to speak
1: Peter Hunt had suggested on uh, that making of documentary that's on the home video that what he could have done was basically end the movie with Bond and Tracy driving off you still film her getting saved for the beginning of the next movie yeah (laughs) Uh, uh, specter (laughs) specter but that didn't happen
4: yeah yeah no I mean I think you could have you could have played that either way you could have played it so that you know, they rode off into the sunset, and then killer, the, the, and then
0: the killer at the start of the next film. Well, I guess we might find out how that works, won't we? Yes,
4: exactly. Well, I was about to say that exact thing. <laughs>
0: Perhaps <laughs> the theory will be tested to see if that's a better yeah. way of doing it.
1: Also, allegedly, Roger Moore told this story. Remember, he did that uh, diary, uh, yeah. yeah, filming *Live and Let mm-hmm. Die*, and he was describing going to see on a mm-hmm. Secret Service and. I want to say the guy he quoted was an agent named Swifty Lazar, who was a renowned Hollywood figure. I think that's who it was, but I'm not positive anyway. Supposedly, like Harry Saltzman asked him, so what do you think? And he said, oh, I think he should have killed him and kept her. But uh, so
3: <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that, <laughs> right. yeah, that's great, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah.
4: <laughs> mm, yeah, it's, uh, I think we, we were saying before, You know, you wouldn't have necessarily got the same casting choices. Um, if Connery had been in it. And I think one of the things they tried to do very definitely, quite obviously is um, pick um, pick up Blazenby through giving him a great supporting cast. And it and it's certainly one of the better casts that we've had. Um, well, certainly, certainly for the period.
1: Also, interestingly, both Diana Rigg and Telly Savalas had just worked together on a movie before that. So they had some obviously experience working together. So, you know, they, I presume they would have, you know, kind of known each other's working habits. Not that they had that many scenes together, but, you know. That was
3: probably. the 68 uh, film, The Assassination Bureau, which also starred Oliver yeah. Reed, who was a contender for Bond for um, Majesty's Secret Reserve. It was yet another one. Although Cubby Broccoli yeah. felt like he was too big a star to play Bond, allegedly. But yeah, that's, that was yeah. a fun film.
0: All right, so a question for everybody then, seeing that they're both anniversaries. Between Majesty's and License to Kill... Celebrating fifty and thirty years respectively, um, which film do you think has um, been rediscovered the best um, through modern <laughs> or through modern audiences?
1: I would say Majesty's, just yes, because I see a lot more people like putting in their top five, top three, some even their top film of, of the Bond series. Um, I, mean, I mean, I think some people think better of License to Kill than they did. Before, but I, I think I, I think Majesties has kind of ridden a bigger wave, so to speak.
2: Yeah, I, I think with with License to Kill, uh, the it, its fans are very very vocal. I don't think there are, are as many of them as Majesties at the moment, but uh, maybe that will change. But uh, for me, it would be Majesties.
3: I think though I agree with that. I think Madigan has had fifty years to incubate and get used to. I think it's a better film, but I think "License to Kill" is still, if Madigan has rediscovered gem. I think Ma- uh, "License to Kill" or the Dalton era is still yet to be appreciated fully. Although it's very interesting with Bond twenty five, they they've got the uh, Aston Martin from the Living Daylights in it, and it's interesting they're getting now those Dalton nods in the new film. And I think Dalton mm. Dalton is you know was probably too good for the pictures he was in and having seen license to Kill recently it does hold up surprisingly well there are problems with it but i think there are problems with all bond films but it, it, it's it, when you when you take it for granted when you reappreciate it 30 years later there's still so much there to enjoy um in that
4: i would um i would say that um it's a it's a actually quite a difficult question because obviously uh, as I said earlier in in, in the podcast that um, Majesty's bumped straight up to pretty much tied number one with Casino Royale for me I think it's a it's a fantastic film and and therefore it's very difficult for me to to say that it's not um, it's not being um, has 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 better appreciation than the, the License to Kill does. Um, I think the the script for *License to Kill* is fantastic. Um, I think it's um, it's got some great characterization in it. Uh, it has some very um, interesting themes in it. Uh, I really enjoy the film. What I what I don't hugely like about the film is is perhaps the production value on it, but it right. does look a little bit made for television. Um, but in terms of um, scripting pacing um and even and even performance I, I i think um dalton does a really great performance in it i think it's a really good film i know that's quite controversial for a lot of people but i do do really like it
0: i'd, I'd say it's probably i'd say it's most improved if that's an award in terms of audience appreciation I, I think majesty's i think a lot of people it's a quality film out of the gate it's like is it a great James Bond film for for what the public think a James Bond film should be. But I think Licence to Kill was overlooked a lot, especially in the public opinion. Until recently, now Craig's reset people's expectations of what James Bond should be. I think
3: that's the point. I think Licence to Kill sort of wasn't quite there. It was predominantly written by Michael Wilson because Richard Maybam had to get off the picture due to the 88 writers' strike. And I think the ideas in Licence to Kill are resonant and motifs are resonant in all the Daniel Craig movies. It's just probably written better, directed better. And *Poor Licence Kill probably was at MGM's sort of lowest point. The bond, bond budgets from 81 in real terms had effectively gone down. Uh, if, uh, mm-hmm. uh, for Your Eyes only was approximately $30 million in 1981, and Licence Kill was $36 million in 1989. And inflation would have made it, effectively go down whereas from Dimes Are Forever to Moonraker for example the budget's increased fourfold so I think with an ailing studio MGM or UA or whatever iteration it was uh, with people uh, a lot of summer competition the, the mixed marketing and of course a risky new direction for a Bond film um, it, it it's affected it but I think I like that idea most improved but I think the legacy of Dalton and Licence to Kill is in the current popular and critical success. You could see that the ideas and embryonic th- motifs that were in that film have been played out properly and written in the current cycle. Were, uh, you know? I, of course, I know people that don't like the current cycle of movie, but in terms of sheer box office and credibility and critical acclaim, the last few films of you know, the Daniel Craig era, Uh, uh, 50 years later still you know has breathed new life into the franchise
0: I think that's a perfect jumping off point well said well said now we're going to start talking about bond 25 so if you don't want to hear any uh news and updates about the film for fear of spoilers um and you've been successfully avoiding the internet and the tv and the radio and newspapers the last few weeks now's a good time to to hit pause and we'll, we'll see you in the next episode uh but for those sticking around um boy howdy has there been a lot of news the last couple of weeks since we did one of these segments on the podcast and uh and what a way to start off um with the royal visit this week
1: well, James, I think you pointed out on Twitter that, uh, you know, these royal visits are not, you know, that you just, they don't just call up say, Hey, we'd like to head over. I mean, they're set up a long time in advance, but it was well-timed if coincidental. Um, it, it, it just really was well-timed. There'd been a lot of, uh, toxic stuff. The sun tabloid was kind of leading the way in that regard, but, um, you know, I, I don't know if it's totally been washed away, but, but, you know there was there was something for everyone in that visit. and if you cared to uh, listen to the audio of of the you know from the video that was shot, you could pick up some interesting tidbits uh, about the film, uh, not super spoilerish, but uh, interesting nonetheless. and uh, yeah I, I I thought it was interesting. it was it was definitely a a good break, so to speak.
3: I love the optics of Prince Charles visiting. The set with you know with Ray Fiennes and you know Daniel Craig the, the three Aston well the two Aston Martins and the echoes of 90, his nineteen eighty six uh, visit to the set with his then wife Princess Diana and the whole heritage of Bond and the, the continuity I think that's what I like about it the subtext of you know this British institutions Aston Martin royalty James Bond continuing and evolving and I just I think it was a great great piece of publicity, very tantalising as well. I like the pick the portrait of Judy Dench's M. And, uh, you know, it was nice to see Michael Wilson on set and I might see Barbara Broccoli. And it was just, you know, I think you can dial out the negative on a few things like this. Remember, most of the public aren't following it every last nook and cranny. So this is much more pervasive. This is much more publicity-friendly around the world. The newspaper's are covering this story. It's only the sun that's uh, plowing its usual trade on the negative stuff.
1: It also answered a few questions in that um, there was a fan theory. Oh, Ray Fiennes, has so much going on. How can he possibly play him? And then he was announced he was going to be in the movie. And then when he was you know, talking to Charles... Uh, he and Daniel Craig talked about um, he, Fiends comes in, does his role in bits. I think he, he that was his. Yeah, role.
0: I, I liked his line where he said, I'm, I'm "Next week I'm on holiday." And Daniel Craig goes, "That's not what you tell the producers." Yeah, <laughs> <exactly>. yeah, <laughs> anyway.
1: yeah. I,
2: I haven't, I haven't found it all. Just I've just up picked up bits and pieces, but um, I, I've completely forgotten about the uh, set visit on on. Um, yeah, uh, on uh living daylight. living daylight thank you yeah and uh but uh, in retrospect I, I was wondering if if um, princess die whether she thought that was a real bottle that she hit him over the head with hmm.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well of course in 1997 diana and dodie were due to visit the set of tomorrow never dies just after yep. she passed away and there was that there were those newspaper headlines, the fake tomorrow newspaper headlines, "Live and Let Die," D.I. in Hamburg Airport, right. all that had to be cut out. And Dodie Fied, of course, was a great friend of Barbara. O'Cleary. She wrote his kind of tribute to him in the in the Times. So there, there, there could have been much more. Prince Charles, of course, I think, was given a toy Aston Martin as well as a child. And um, there's a big connect. He drives Aston Martins, I think. Was it Prince Har- Prince William who drove an Aston William. Martin back? from his Royal Wedding, says yep. there's a lot of stuff subtextual going on there, which I love, and I think I like the tradition of it. I think Bond fans at some point are traditionalists with a small T, and this plays to all of that, and I like it. It was good.
0: And it was nice to see the new slash old MI6. Yes,
2: yes, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah, you, you, you get um, the photos I've seen give you a good impression of the office, yeah.
4: Yeah, yeah. It sort of seems that we're, we're, we're back on... Uh, familiar, familiar ground um, with, uh, with 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 some of the locations and the sets that we're we're seeing, and I think that that was one of the things that um, I thought was interesting about um, really the last um, the last film was uh, that you you only really have just got to a point where um, in in Daniel's arc where you know these these familiar locations and and characters are firmly kind of set back into into place so it's good i think that we're having this this film to to reestablish that and as uh, aj says um this is this sort of royal visit is um, very much a a kind of a traditional thing and it and it reinforces that kind of traditionalism and and the connections with the royal family
3: uh, and as someone, as some wag pointed out, it's on His Majesty's Secret Service, which I liked. So that was good. That's right.
1: That's right. Um, also, you did get an idea of the uh, the rough progress at one point. Charles asked, are you about halfway done? he said, and Daniel Craig kind of was thinking about it. He said, I'd say about a third. He, was, he looked like he was like kind of doing, doing a rough math problem in his head when he said about a third. But, yeah, I mean – I mean, for all the stuff that's been written about the mishaps and so forth, clearly they've been doing work. And, um, you know, I mean, that, that gave you a rough idea of you know where they stand.
3: Plus, there was a wider optic there about Barbara Rockley nurturing the new talent there are a lot of trainees and interns in the film and I think that her her role in the British film industry about bringing on new talent new facilities I think that was important as well there's a bigger picture than just the Bond film and I think that plays very well and remember most today all the entire press is filled with pictures of it no one is mentioning any problems so I think when they do something publicity wise they trample the negativity in a kind of naturally organic story and I think that's what's coming out I like it that's what's coming out from this
1: so you know it's great also sometime in the last week or so craig didn't have to wear you know was freed from his foot cast so yeah. that that helped optics as well yeah
2: it wouldn't have looked so good if he was in a wheelchair that's for sure
3: yeah. um, and of course around about this time we had the omaze campaign the charity which wins a set to the Bond yep. film, and I thought Daniel Craig was w- walking unhindered there, and that was quite a nice bit of banter about the crew members debating who's the better Bond, you know, Roger Moore or Sean Connery, and then yes. one pipes in, well, Timothy, oh, Dalton, Timothy Dalton. I thought that was good good, good nature of Daniel Craig as well, so that yeah. was great.
2: It, well. I, I, sh- I shared that on, on Instagram, and somebody responded saying, oh, it looks like Prince Charles won it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Well,
0: he got his entry time. That was good. Yeah. So, you know, talking about other news that didn't really get picked up, um the, the government health and s- safety in- investigation into the explosion was like, yeah, nothing. It was it was an accident. Yep. So, moving on. Right. I think picked up. Well, anywhere. yeah. I mean, Again, it, that got mag- here.
3: That got magnified by the sun. They wanted. I know people on set. It wasn't a problem. It didn't. It didn't really cause these things happen. At least it didn't burn down again. You know, mm. no. They, that, they're, right, they're, they're
2: obliged to look. Yeah, yeah. They're to go in and look at them, and whether there's something or not, something of this nature. So it's you know, it's yeah. just uh, yeah. it's routine, really.
3: Oh. How- Alpha, Pinewood has its own fire brigade and water station there, so that, I think they're mm-hmm. they're quite well equipped. But yeah, no, I'm sure. But again, people want it. Bad news sells, you know, so they want it to be more than it was. I'm sure it was an incident that needed to be controlled. But rather like the the stories of Rami Malik and Daniel Craig not not filming together, that's greatly exaggerated. And yes. so
0: again which Rami Malek has disputed yes, yes, he's, he's, now saying that it was not true and they're fine. And yes, it got rescheduled, exactly. but they're working yeah. together. So,
1: Right. And, and it also came out that he has actually filmed Rami Malek has, has actually done some Bond 25 filming. Yeah. Um, at, that was not made very clear at the, at the reveal at the end of April, just what his schedule would be. But, you know,
0: well, a lot of things were not clear after that reveal event, but, right.
1: yeah. that but But it was made clear in that interview or press conference or whatever it was that Remy Malek had.
0: Yeah. One of the things that wasn't clear, we talked about it on the podcast after that, the day after that reveal event was we think, we thought there was a location missing, right? Cause Norway plus Jamaica, plus the UK and the car chase in Italy isn't quite enough and You know, we were kicking around, well, Jamaica could double for Cuba and Cuba, Cuba, Cuba. Maybe they go back to Cuba and then, surprise, (laughs) it's Cuba. And um, Prince Charles has actually photographed on the set the mock-up of Havana. So um, we have some more coverage coming this week about that. But um, thoughts? Because it seems to be like we're just checking off
4: things that have been done before. I I think it's interesting that we do seem to have this uh, ability to kind of – you know, predict these, uh, these sets, cars, whatever it is, sets, sets, I said <laughs> SCTS, um, locations, etc. cetera. Um, but um, I, I think Cuba kind of made sense in terms of the narrative, mainly because um, it, it was, it, yeah, well, the casting, but also because also what they were talking about in terms of um, uh, not being able to turn into Bond for help you know, um, not being necessarily able to operate there, perhaps. I don't know. That's what it felt like to me.
1: Yes. Also the proximity of Jamaica to Cuba, you could see how that could uh, play into the plot. The right type of trees.
4: Yeah. Yeah. It just, it just makes it, I mean, it's not like they haven't, um, used Jamaica for even more remote locations in the past, but, um, it would it would sort of make sense in terms of um, plotting I think um, and that's and that's why it sort of sat comfortably when we were talking about it before
0: but you know Brosnan went there twice you know in recent years right both mm. Goldeneye and I another day so to your point Bill Purvis and Wade something there isn't there they do
1: like the key because they tried
0: to wedge it into the, the world's not enough as well
1: right and, and and when they uh, got overruled, in the next movie they, <laughs> they cube into that.
0: Um, other other tidbits that came out. Obviously, um, Aston Martin <laughs> were not exactly, uh, as Brosnan would say, they were pretty opaque with you, David, weren't they, at the event? <laughs> were,
2: um... Yeah. Well, the um, at, at the at the event, um, I, I asked directly uh, what car they we would see in in bond 25 and the the uh the the response i i mean i don't know if they were opaque they they were the the answer was very am, ambiguous and um it's you know i i took it as being a, a no then weren't, weren't in the in the the film but you know it was the uh, the woman I was speaking to, she she had to pause for a moment to get her thoughts together, and then she started it saying, "Well, the official and Martin position on this is this," and then it went on this kind of uh, uh route of, of, of words, and it was like, "I think that means no," and um, and I I had to, I did have to think about it afterwards to. Was she, was she saying no or was she saying uh, maybe and uh, and but thinking about it several times afterwards i came to the same conclusion no so yeah they were they
1: were um they might want to have got had better talking points because um you know the ceo told cnn in an interview last fall like yeah we're gonna be in the next movie um he didn't seem to hedges bets yeah then.
2: yeah um, I, I i i don't understand it because um i'd actually forgotten about that until uh, until this week yeah
3: i'm really looking forward to the lego valhalla astin martin lego valhalla that would right. be really good next year
0: <laughs> well i think the feedback i've seen online has been that looks like the batmobile yeah, more than, I, I, more, than, I, I, more than a James, more than a James Bond car. It looks like the, that. The, the, yeah, the, the I,
2: I said I said on um, Twitter earlier today. It's the kind of car you'd expect from a car manufacturer with real pedigree who handed the keys to the design studio over to a, a company best known for over caffeinated fizzy drinks. <laughs> 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 uh, I mean, it it, look, it looks like a fantastic car, but it doesn't look like an Aston Martin. Uh, it, right. and, it, just, and you, you, you can see it, you job. can see it's formula one pedigree rather than its aston martin pedigree and i, I think that's well, a misstep
1: really or um uh, a 24-hour Le Mans pedigree sure. as well
2: yeah uh, and um it's, it's definitely a racing car rather than a road car and i you know and i wonder uh I, you know first of all i was thinking you know three different aston martins in the film just is it seems absurd. So my, my second thought is, well, maybe Bond isn't going to have it and maybe it's the villain's car.
1: Well, well there's a new theory online, uh, and I've seen multiple people express it. So I, I, I haven't figured out who said it first, but there's like three or four who've, who've tweeted about it. It might be the new agent's car. And so that's why. So, so it turns out Bond is driving the 1980s car. Right. You can't get the newest thing. So they give him you know the sloppy seconds, quote unquote, um, as if any Aston Martin is sloppy seconds. But
0: well, like any government department, when equipment becomes too old, they basically raffle it off yeah. to the employees. <laughs> so. Well, a couple of things that came out of that royal visit. One is uh, Lashana's character is definitely an MI6 agent. She's in the Money Penny's office, and you know, outside M, that's pretty clear. And you know, spoilers: Daniel James Bond's wearing is wearing a visitor's badge for his meeting with M.
2: Ah, uh, right? I, I saw somebody referring to to the visitor's badge. I hadn't, I hadn't got the connection. I, I need to really ca- yeah. catch up on all this.
0: They. They took it off very carefully for all the official photos, but the unofficial photos that people were taking with their phones and stuff. Um, Craig's costume had a visitor's badge, so he is still retired at the point where they're filming whatever that scene that
1: was yesterday. <laughs> That's right. The badge says, my name is James. That's right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Escort, es- escort required. <laughs> Not that kind of escort. <laughs> <laughs> so any um, other any other thoughts on the, all the comings and goings
1: uh, one moment? other amusing uh, moment in the byplay between uh, the prince and the cast was um yeah um they were saying he was talking to Ray he says, yeah well, we're giving him a hard time, and he's giving us a hard time and um Prince Charles said again
0: <laughs> right
1: <laughs> and then, and I think Ray Fines replied, yeah again." <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think that does it for the bond 25 news. And, um, so, you know, in, in keeping the, this recent pattern of finding terrible, terrible covers of James Bond songs, um, some of the guys will know this already. Um, there's a Swedish singer who died a couple of years ago called, um, Freddie Waddling. Apparently he's a big deal in Sweden. Um, and in his sixties, um, in ill health, the national Swedish broadcaster, decided to get a full orchestra and studio audience for him to perform some James Bond covers. So we will have Freddie Wadling's uh, rendition of Licence to Kill Plays <laughs> up <this evening.
2: laughs> I cannot wait to hear that.
0: Thanks very much, guys. Catch you next week. Good Thanks, you. guys. Take care.
3: Hey, baby, think you need a friend to stand here by your side. Yes, you do. Oh, baby, now you can depend upon me to make things right. Please don't bet that you'll never escape me. Once I get my sights on you, get a license to kill. And you know I'm going straight for your heart. A license to kill anyone who tries to tear us off.